Hi, welcome to another episode of MA Stories by Fifth Grove Insights. I'm your host, Anirvan Sen. And I'm your co-host, Marcella Hall. And today's topic is yet another MA story. Now, as you know, MA is a complex process, which is why many companies embark on MA journeys with extreme caution. On the other side, there are companies that have been acquiring quite regularly. And in fact, some of them have become serial acquirers. And in doing that, they've converted the whole process of MA into a science. Today's guest is one of those serial acquirers. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives us a pleasure to welcome Nitin Kumar as our guest in today's episode. Welcome, Nitin. We're so excited to have you here on MA Stories. And we just wanted to jump off to, with um, hearing a little bit more about your background, your story, if you could share with us you know, a little bit about that um, and you know, how you wound up in M&A. Okay, thank you, uh, Anirvan and Marcella. Thank you for having me here. Uh, it's my pleasure. A uh, little bit of myself, I've been a veteran of uh, M&A and particularly in the TMT industries for more than two decades now. Um, I got into M&A at the turn of the century and uh, I have done over a thousand deals in about 70 countries across all the six continents. I've played across uh, M&A strategy, due diligence, integration, separation, um, running small deals like 50 million and mega deals close to 100 billion and everything in between. I was born and raised in India, then uh, started my career in South Africa, moved around to Australia, came into the US, spent a lot of time across the pond in Europe, um, I used to be uh, with Hewlett Packard uh, once upon a time, uh, back at the turn of the century. That's how during the compact integration was my first uh, exposure to M&A and then obviously being in consulting firms like Deloitte and PwC, done the rounds. Uh, the unique part is that I have rarely crossed out of my sector. I've been, uh, took a conscious decision to be in the technology, media and telecom and pretty much a lot of the deals that uh, you've seen from the past decade or, or the current decade uh, have some fingerprint of mine. Um, some went well, some didn't go that well, but uh, a lot of lessons learned there. So I now live, uh, live in New Jersey, but uh, generally spend bulk of my career on the 101 highway and uh, in the large media and uh, telecommunications companies. Brilliant. I think that's really good to get good stories out of you in today's session. What's your perspective on serial acquirers? Yeah, this is a very philosophical question. And whenever I tell this to serial acquirers, uh, they generally have a little bit of an aha moment. The serial acquirer definition kind of ended in the last decade, right? The, uh, the, the, the real deal here is that there used to be consolidation mergers in the last decade and people used to run the playbook um, one after the other. And that gave a definition to uh, the word serial acquirer. Okay, today the reality is that there are way more deal types beyond just the serial acquirer. Uh, serial, uh, serial acquirers can think about, right? So you have consolidation, adjacency, aqua hire, carve out integrations. Uh, you have the new business models. And if you plot these on the x-axis and on the y-axis, you have the occasional frequent and serial acquirer. And if you plot your last five years deals, you'll very quickly realize that you're a serial acquirer for a certain type of a deal at a given point in time. It's not necessarily you're a serial acquirer for everything at every given point in time. And serial acquisition of a consolidation uh, style merger doesn't mean you do carve out integration or new business models well. 
So the whole definition has changed. And this is one of the challenges that uh, serial acquirers are fraught with. Those playbooks from the last decade are being recycled and continually run. So on a certain type of a deal, you may have perfected the art to the science, but uh, it doesn't necessarily scale across all deal types. Excellent. And I think uh, when we talk about serial acquirers, right? I mean, uh, do you think that there is a certain pattern of the kind of deals or the kind of acquisitions that they make? So for example, a large company will always buy smaller companies uh, in kind of a tuck-in mode or a, you know, complete absorption mode or versus you see a diversified portfolio of acquisition taking place with some of these players. Um, so it's not necessarily there's an Uber pattern to everything. If you think about it, the divide between the old economy and the new economy has never been this profound. And uh, the old economy, just by structural forces being shaken up, have to rely on consolidation. So there are certain sectors that are consolidating and they continue to sort of uh, buy the bigger guys uh, and drive cost synergies and economies of scale uh, running industry dominance or, or attaining scale there, right? But if you look at the new economy, it's by definition more disruptive, volatile, fast changing, and uh, they have to really not embark on these two, three year kind of transformations. There's no time. And the larger the integration, as you guys know, the more longer it is and the more operationally painful it gets. So it's really the quick uh, stuff uh, that's going on. It's literally the new business model absorption, rapid aqua hires, uh, quickly absorb and tuck in, and you'll see those patterns emerge in those sectors. Having said that, even, uh, even as you look at people who are scaling, which is born in the new, they have an urge to uh, get tech and talent really quickly. So there's patterns that depends on the industry, the sector, the geography, and the uh, structural forces uh, uh, at, at play in those uh, industries and sectors. Sure, that makes sense. Great call out there. Um, and, and totally understood and appreciated your point on you may be a serial acquirer at a moment in time, right? But it's it's not I'll necessarily. <laughs> um, so I wanted to just pause for a minute. Um, I'm curious to know, how would you define the term serial acquire? And I think this would be really helpful for our listeners. Um, you know, how, how would you consider that definition? So it's very simple. Go back to the grid that I talked about, right? On the y-axis, you plot occasional, frequent, and serial. And on the x-axis plot, the types of deals, consolidation, adjacency, aqua hire, carve out integration, new business model. And if there's any other type that I missed at that as well, right? And, and then you plot your deals on, onto this grid. You'll pretty clearly understand that maybe 2017, you were a serial acquirer of the aqua hire kind of deals. In 2018, you may be doing more carve out integrations. In, in 2014, you may be doing more consolidations so remember, you are a serial acquirer of a certain deal type at a certain point in time. There is no Uber definition of that anymore. But does that mean it's like what, two or three acquisition in a year to be considered a serial it's, acquirer? Uh, it's a good question, um, right? Again, the the thesis here is that anybody below five is considered, an, uh, considered a frequent acquirer, not a serial acquirer, right? You need to be crossing the threshold of five. And then industry has got varying definitions of complexity on it, which we may or may not agree on everyone because uh, we've discussed this before. Smaller deal doesn't necessarily mean less complex. You still have to extract shareholder value out of it, right? So it's, it's literally about putting those definitions in your own context mm -hmm. and, and benchmarking it to the industry you're in and, and your own, own acquisition posture. 
The problem with many serial acquirers today is that they don't understand their own acquisition posture, that they may have moved from a, a, a tuck-in to more an acquire posture and from an occasional to frequent, right? And that's the time you need to sort of make those changes and drive those interventions. And obviously, as I said, complexity is a big part and there's varying views and definitions of, of, of what complexity is in the industry. So it makes it very challenging to pinpoint a very specific uh, definition of a serial acquirer, but um, using the points and frameworks that are articulated, you can kind of deduce them into the into the range and uh, operate and drive value through uh, those specific uh, methods. Now, let me ask you a question regarding uh, the comparison of serial acquirer versus some of the large mergers. I mean, you mentioned um, uh, HP and Compaq, and then uh, there are so many other sort of mega deals uh, that have taken place, right? And which tend to have long tails, you know, it's not something that gets done within a quarter and everything is done, dusted and move on, right? They, these tend to be years. Not years, absolutely. Whereas on the serial acquirers, our experience has been that it usually is, is a few months um, and definitely does not uh, extend into years. What's been your experience? What's kind of the typical timeline people look at when it comes to serial acquisitions? See, serial acquisitions generally go a year or more. Okay. Uh, that was the classic definition from the last decade. Mm -hmm. Now, again, going to the deal type, there are people who are doing a $1 billion acquisition and they consider it very tiny relative to their size. Uh, is, is volume, uh, is the operational complexity and the deal value the driver or is there underlying operational complexities? Those have to be put in perspective. And there are many people who have actually moved from serial acquisition into parallel acquisition. Okay, so I don't know whether the definition of serial acquirer holds, even, even what you just mentioned, I would consider parallel acquisition because there are three or four deals in flight before one ends, there's another one mounted and another one mounted. Right. So those may be a better way of characterizing it rather than serial. Serial was one after the other. I, I guess that's not what you were saying. Right. You were absorbing and then continually sort of pounding the machine. And uh, those tend to go between three and six months. Having said that, again, the end state definition has changed pretty drastically. It's not about full integration anymore, because if you're taking a new business model, you don't necessarily full integrate because an apple and orange don't integrate. I mean, yes, I agree. They're both fruits, but they don't integrate. So you measure time to value, not necessarily time to full integration because it's not even possible, right? Because they're just two different business models. And many times one cannibalizes the other. So you need to be very circumspective um, what your definition and end game is. And I love that analogy, apples and oranges, they're both fruit. You know, the reason, part of the reason we're trying to probe on, you know, what is a serial acquire, and I appreciate the, the also the call out and the distinction between parallel acquire, as we've seen that organizations that are, acquiring and you know they, they haven't even had a chance to really start integrating that organization and they're already announcing another acquisition. Um, but what we're trying to better understand is sort of what um, challenges should companies you know be aware of if they are moving more towards that serial acquire or parallel acquire path versus if they're you know on the traditional path where they're acquiring one organization and you know so maybe their activity um, is uh, is they're able to, to handle that well, right? They can acquire one company, integrate it well, versus if you're on that hyper path, you know, what sort of challenges should you become aware of? See, again, it really depends on what you're acquiring and what is your deal thesis, okay? If you think about, there are three broad things, the old economy acquiring the old economy, right? Uh, 
the new economy kind of uh, kind of improving their posture, and then the old trying to transition into the new. Okay, the the biggest challenge here is that we are burdened by the old playbooks of integration, uh, which were again written for either the last decade or the last century. And even if you look at MA, it's got two real things. One is the structural part, and one is the functional part, right? Functional integration really means that you take a functional view, HR, IT, you know, supply chain, sales, marketing, and you kind of fuse them together and drive economies of scale, more efficiencies, deduplicate things, and all that. But what we're dealing right now in the era of disruption in this decade, which is going to be more profound, is the structural forces at play, right? That kind of crushes uh, how you think about functions. Um, and you need to create structural barriers and structural advantage. That's what you're gaining. And your functions don't necessarily give that because uh, with digital transformation, your functions itself, their operating capabilities are under a question mark. Okay, so one of the things that you think about is that am I doing cost energy and then you have all these boxes and lines reporting into the IMO? Now that's great, but uh, if for cost synergies and back office, that's largely applicable. But when you're talking about revenue synergy or design of the IMO is completely reconfigured. You need to get the machine between the sales, marketing, product, pricing, customer experience, all that kind of firing together. So one function cannot do it. Now, there are varying schools of thoughts in it, thoughts about it. If the deal is lar large enough, you can configure it by the value driver, right? Which has yielded very good dividends. Um, the second problem is that synergies in the classic way that we know it are kind of over, right? Uh, we've got uh, Lindy effects, you've got Metcalf's law, net networks, and uh, we're driving fairly exponential uh, revenue synergies there. And those don't necessarily come out of the function um, uh, uh, as, in, as in the back office. So it's literally, then the third one comes in that, how am I configuring my IMO? Am I doing a drive and deliver posture? Am I doing an advise and support posture? Am I doing an augment and report with the business units doing drive and deliver? So the, there is varying ways of configuring your IMO as well, which is also kind of lost on people. They just think that uh, you can put an IMO, bank six functional leads under it, and uh, you know synergies magically show up, right? It, it doesn't happen that way. So who's driving and delivering, who's advising and supporting, who's the lead and influence, who's the augment and report? And then in many companies that I'm sure you guys have seen it, the IMO is not the drive and deliver. It's sort of the augment and report, right? You just put these reports to a steering committee. It, it doesn't work that way. Um, it, it's literally, you need to think about the function or value driver as the wingman. The IMO is the person who's flying the, flying the plane. Okay, the deal type is your airspace and your governance and steering committee is the air traffic control. Now, if all of these people start to step into each other's territory, what happens? The plane crashes, right? Or, or you're just flying blind. And uh, this is generally what happens. You're taking the old era stuff, trying to push it into the new era, and uh, you really don't know who's flying the plane, right? Uh, that becomes a very challenging proposition, particularly when you don't know the airspace. You're doing a deal type that you've never done before. Yeah, great analogy. I mean, in fact, I love the airspace uh, analogy. Um, now, you and I, we have spoken about this a number of times, right? I mean, you've been literally at the forefront of uh, many of these uh, new ways of doing things, especially from your time in the Bay Area, versus in the world, there is still a large number of people are still trying to get used to doing deals and getting into the m and space. For them, Playbook is as sacrosanct as a, as a religious book, uh, and, and that kind of defines the guideline. Whereas on the other side, uh, the, the, the little sort of uh, forebearers are right up front doing lots of stuff. 
what would you say is kind of a common ground for organizers to become adept in acquisition so that they can conduct more than one acquisition uh, at a time at the same time be aware of certain let's say wannabe syndromes where if you try to go too fast try to be too much like the bay area companies you may fall on your face yeah look i mean the principles of m a are the same it's about uh, the end state is also the same okay now how you reach there is where the disagreements are right we may not all necessarily agree between the old economy and the new economy how to get there but everybody wants to get there that's like a foregone conclusion um, I also don't think that uh, there is a there is a death of the old economy. I think it is it's just a reality. It's going to continue for a while. Yes, obviously the new economy may prevail, but it's not happening anytime soon. So there's M and A also done for survival. M and A also done for uh, uh, growth, and M and A also to get, do structural advantage. So again, this is all put in context. Having said that, the useful uh, thing that I've seen is that don't go over index on synergies. Okay, it's it's all about shareholder value backwards, not synergy forward. And I keep giving you the example of the Nokia and uh, uh, Microsoft merger. Okay, it was a pretty classic example of how to differentiate synergies and shareholder value. Now you took a hypothesis which was very sound, and and I would argue one of the one of the better hypotheses that look we have all this Microsoft Exchange and we have all this other stuff. Uh, we've got SharePoint, and what we don't have is is a phone. Right. If we get the phone, we will be the enterprise phone. BlackBerry is kind of on its way down. We're going to conquer the enterprise globe and then later the galaxy. And there was a wrong assumption made that this Apple and Samsung, these are consumer phones. We're never going to come into the enterprise. Okay. Uh, what happened is the exact opposite. The network effect that Apple and Samsung and all these other gathered, the velocity and ferocity that they entered the enterprise, kind of through your deal thesis. Um, on its face. You were mercenarily executing your playbook. Did you create synergy? Yes. Did you create shareholder value? Big question mark, right? I mean, I'm sure you hit all your synergy goals in the way it was defined. So there is a difference there. Also, what's different is that there is an infrastructure piece of MA, which is your IMO, your playbook, your day one planning, all your checklists. It's a given. Okay. It's a given. IMO can turn the cranks and all, all, all that stuff. It's necessary infrastructure. Nobody debates that. I think there is a fundamental shift and decoupling between value creation and the old way of thinking. The value is really created by strategy, operations, the value drivers, the functions. So you need those skill sets coming in. And then the question also becomes is that how do I derive value, right? It's always thought about as cost synergy and revenue synergy. I think there's more to that, right? There is, a, there is a sort of a reciprocal synergy, which means I can bring X, the other guy can bring Y, and together we fuse that. There is sequential synergy. If I do these four steps, then step five, six, seven, eight become more viable, putting the two companies together. There is the beta synergies, right, which are isolating those synergies and value drivers, which are directly impacting stock price, right? And you treat them very differently. So there's many different ways of thinking about it than your old, older ways of looking at it. And, and if you work shareholder value backwards and you take uh, a, a laser focus on what's a reciprocal, what's a sequential, what's a better synergy, I think cost and revenue synergies are an outcome, uh, actually a very favorable outcome. They're not your starting point anymore. And I think this applies generally to the old economy and the new economy alike, right? Whichever sector, those principles don't change. As I said, it's just a way of thinking that has changed. 
how you arrive at the destination may have varying viewpoints, but uh, nobody disagrees on what the destination is, which is really shareholder value. Thank you for sharing that. We had talked a little bit earlier about challenges that serial acquires may face and parallel acquires. And it sounded to me like you were you were saying in your in your plain analogy that getting clarity on roles and responsibilities and who is driving what, who is doing what is really important and critical. Would you would you agree? I just wanted to kind well, of that is that is absolutely correct, right? It's not a mercenarial playbook again that function has to do this and IMO has to do this. Again, changes with the deal type and 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 things like that, right? And, and there are there's a lot of tendency for people to rely or overemphasize on insight. I think that era is also very behind us now. It's all about foresight. Okay, what can you what can you take uh, from your prior learnings and experience, but not over-index on it because your experience doesn't mean anything if you're flying a plane in uncharted territory. Your expertise means everything, right? And and then you drive on to who should be doing what. Uh, what are my 10, 15 activities that I do? What are the dependencies? Uh, what are the risks? How do I mitigate them? And, and how do I protect shareholder value? Um, honestly, if you hit the big, big three uh, items that uh, drive shareholder value, I think your small tactical stuff, other than the stuff that keeps you out of jail, um, can be deprioritized. Awesome. Wonderful. And so just um, building on that, are there any tools or techniques or technologies that you think can be helpful um, to help organizations mitigate those challenges? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of tools and technologies that are uh, available. There's playbooks, there's consultants, there's like everything that is available. It's actually less important um, on, on that front. It's more important to keep your mindset focused on what I'm doing in this deal, right? And I'll give you a classic example of a challenge that you see on an aqua hire deal. You have such a mercenary playbook, one of my earlier clients. So there's Mr. XYZ, who's grown up, right? He was a vice president at a large company, earned his jobs, done, done his things. Then he went into a small company and also assumed the vice president role, right? An aqua hire deal happens, you take him into the smaller company and then you're like, no, a vice president here maps to a director here, right? You're completely washing off uh, what has happened. And, and by the way, that, that guy or gal may be even more qualified to deal with scale and complexity. It just made it move it move to go into a startup or a smaller company, right? So the executive repatriation is what we call it in the industry on an, uh, on on an acquired deal. You create problems like this, right? Because you're so rigid with your policy. That guy in that company maps this. 20 years before, he was probably running a way more complex business. Great point. In fact, uh, I just wanted to also interject and uh, uh, ask you to define what an aqua hire is. Yeah, it's fairly simple, right? Aqua hire deals have got three or four different varying definitions. Let me try to simplify and bring them together. It's generally uh, originated not by corporate development, by a business. Okay, it's, it's literally to get your hands on talent, which has worked cohesively together that can bring in uh, the entire orchestra that can sing, not one musical instrument after another, after another. Uh, your net present value of uh, NPV of an aqua hire has to be greater than organic hiring for, for, for one. Second, there has to be a cohesion between these people. It's generally in the industry noted that the business they're doing is less important. Uh, the team is uh, more important. So it's about picking up talent, less about tech, but uh, talent in, in big pods to accelerate 
specific skill sets or specific areas or specific product development and, and, and things like that. Again, the calculation is that the NPV for NPV of an aqua hire has to be greater than organic hiring. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. Excellent. That kind of brings me to my next question. You've got a lot of experience in the serial acquisition space, right? And uh, I'd always try to draw lessons from the private equity world and strategic buyers to try and compare and contrast. Uh, you mentioned McCafe, you mentioned network effect, right? Um, now, in the case of network effect, especially if you're, when you're acquiring a company based on the technology and you want to get a network effect for your own organization, some of it is wishful thinking. Some of it is also taking higher risks compared to strategic buying, which may not be such a risky maneuver. So what has been your experience? Do you see a lot of strategic buyers moving into that space versus private equities? No, I think we need to sort of, again, peel the onion on this, right? Um, there's a little bit of a challenge when you put network effect on a product. They're more applicable to a platform, and we'll come to that in a, in, yeah. in a minute, right? Um, and it's a little bit murky in defining that for a product. But let's, let's come to that. Now, private equity does not like market risk. They're okay with execution risk, and they're more confident in your operational capabilities and, and things like that, right? Um, if you're talking about these young startups that are growing up, their operational posture hasn't really matured. It's a maturing operational posture. They're all about, all right, you know, one or two operational things I know will go wrong, but I'm going to take it because I don't want to take the market. I'm taking the market risk and I'm going there. So it's like almost flipped. So and it, it, it also reflects in what they pay for, right? A private equity is would be hard pressed to pay for anything revenue synergy or anything forward looking because they can't hold and quantify that. It's changing, but it's not changed that much. If you go to a mid-sized company, billion, three billion kinds, they're okay taking, uh, they're, take, they're, they're okay foregoing one or two operational items as long as the market risk doesn't come. Now, going into the network effect side of it, they're more applicable to platforms than products. And if you go look at an Uber or an Airbnb, you don't have functions inside the company. It's all outside, right? Your employees are outside, your R&D is open, open source coming in from crowds all of that, your marketing as outside comes from all those uh, trip advisors and things like that, right? Mm -hmm. So then you don't try to manage uh, the mercenarial playbook again, because uh, you don't have control on these functions, you're only an orchestrator. So your IMO moves to into a lead and influence kind of a posture then drive and deliver. You just can't manage that. Um, your finance is arguably outside. One side of the platform may have users, they don't have the other side of it. So the network effect has to be calibrated more on a platform like a Spotify or an Apple or the two-sided platforms give you more quantified, objective uh, and executable network effect. The product network effect is ill understood and uh, sometimes even misguided to go hit that thinking you're a platform, but you're not. And um, those become a little more challenging. And private equity also is starting to look at things differently, but they're not quite there yet. Excellent. I mean, this is always a pleasure to kind of speak with you, um, you know, especially the examples that you gave uh, always brings it a fresh perspective. Uh, so I'm enjoying the conversation here. Absolutely. Likewise. Thank you. So as we look ahead, I think, and you used to live in the Bay Area, uh, is that right? Before? Yeah. Yeah. the east coast yeah so we were thinking you know about your time there and how you were really in the hotbed of innovation and so um we were just curious to know what do you see you know what kinds of trends do you see emerging as you look ahead in m a 
Look, some of the trends gave a false flag, to be honest, in the, in the last decade and didn't really mature uh, with literally robots running sure. integration. That has not happened and hopefully will happen one day, right? Uh, but, but technology is starting to get used, particularly AI for contractual due diligence is actually a reality. Okay, there's been a lot of that uh, going on. Drones are doing supply chains, particularly during the pandemic. We saw more of that. Uh, there is uh, a, a lot of that going on. Uh, the movement to the cloud has created uh, a, a lot of opportunity and taken off burden from the complexities of the IT uh, nightmare that we used to live in the past decade. And with that have also come in things like software-defined networks and all of those things have become materially easy. Your ERPs are in the cloud and there's more and more companies going to the cloud as a result of the mm -hmm. uh, pandemic. So those things have become uh, a, a lot easier. AI is starting to also predict patterns in, in talent and in, in cultural diligence and, and, and a lot of those areas. So those have become uh, more relevant, right? I just, I'm not there that a robot is gonna run an IMO as yet. It, it may happen sure. in my lifetime, but not yet. Sure, sure. Awesome, thank you. Really appreciate everything that you shared. Um, and then wanted to kind of shift gears a little bit. You have written a couple of different books and I think you have a recent book that just came out around wargaming. So just curious to know what was the inspiration for your latest book? Yeah, so MA Wargaming is really uh, written because I had something to say. It's nothing, uh, nothing new to people, but the shift in the thinking is that the era of insight is kind of done, right? Go to foresight, test your assumptions, test your hypotheses. Uh, you will go wrong. Your first ideas are always brilliant and horribly wrong, right? So you test them. Test them, take the brilliance and correct that, right? And again, if you look at uh, uh, the, some of the deals that I gave you an example of, what is synergy? What is shareholder value? What are you looking at? And if you had wargamed that scenario, you may have probably seen some of these phones penetrate. You didn't even test that scenario, right? And, and many such things. Uh, there are things that I've seen which could have been avoided. Mass executive defection, product recalls, media snafus, uh, security hacks. Okay, seen, seen many of these things and now seen a pandemic also. But all kinds of these crises when they come in between an MA is a significant distraction and they leak executive bandwidth, synergies, all kinds of things and, and even money. Uh, it's, it's very hard to put those things back on track and relying on your prior experience because some of us may not have seen it, right? May not have seen a product recall, but these things happen. Okay, they happen in a very unforeseen way. Takes you like 30 minutes to wargame it, but it's going to take you two years to fix it. So it's again, go, remember my thing, forget your experience. It's all about your expertise and how you navigate it into the new, uh, new era. Brilliant. And uh, I wish uh, some of us uh, would absolutely be saying, I wish uh, we had uh, half of what Nitin's uh, fountain of knowledge has, uh, you know, to be successful in our jobs, right? And I know you are a very, very well-read person. Uh, so for the benefit of our viewers, um, would you be in a position to recommend some of the books that uh, uh, you really like? Yeah, so let me let me set the ground for that, right? In, in this era or in this decade that we're emerging, all of us kind of know that we're going to come out in 2030 as a very different world. It, it's coming. Nobody can deny that. So what skills do you need? You, you need the skills to rapidly unlearn, right? Because everybody that we know is generally smart and they can learn. Where the baggage happens is your ability to unlearn and unlearn quickly, okay? And it's also very clear that the rules of the last decade are breaking down here. 
So in the wake of that, I think you need to look at how the exponential era is unfolding. Salim Ismail's exponential organization is a, is a, is a must read for many people. Uh, the Price of Tomorrow by Jeff Booth, uh, macroeconomic factors are shifting. Okay, Peter Demandis, the founder of Singularity University is another excellent guy to follow. So those are the three or four books that come, come to me um, top of my head. And these are all dealing with structural forces, how the functions are impacted, how change happens and doesn't happen, right? Change management is also gonna be flipped on its head. It's not about how you change, it's about how you're resisting. And uh, as, as people say, right, we come from the built to last era. That was what was taught to us in our degrees, which now kind of stand obsolete. What's happening is built to change or, or built to adapt or pick your words on everyone, right? Yeah. See, what's happening in the market is the exact opposite. You cannot take your skill set and milk it for seven, eight years, right? If you go back to our parents' generation, those skill sets used to be monetized over 30 years. Two years, reinvent yourself. It, it doesn't mean you got to stop doing MA or digital transformation. There is a lot of reinvention possible even in that. Think differently and adapt, right? And don't be afraid to go to uncharted territory because uh, nobody knows this stuff. I love that. Being, being able to adapt, being flexible, being able to unlearn something and, and learn something new in a pretty quick time frame, I think will be incredibly helpful. Um, you know, helpful for us as individuals. And then, you know, as we're thinking about all of these organizations who are acquiring multiple companies, you know, one right after another or at, in parallel at the same time, I think that that change management, that ability to be flexible and adaptable is important for those organizations, right? They need to be able to express to their employees how, you know, this is our vision for the future and it's it's an amazing vision. And so you're all a part of this journey, but, you know, we're going to all need to be flexible and adaptable to get there. Absolutely. Excellent. But before we go, a um, couple of questions for you. So one is, um, if somebody were to start his journey um, at this point in time uh, in the world of M&A uh, with so much going on, what would be one or two things that you would mention her or him about about the career in the space? Yeah, one of the things is that really chart your own path, right? Uh, don't listen to what worked in the past because uh, in, in this era, what worked really is not gonna work uh, in the past. Don't get hung up on your experience or you did this 20 years back or five, even five years back and it worked well there, right? Chances are it may not. Uh, be very data-driven. Okay, uh, gut feel used to work because there were only as many degrees of freedom and ranges of option. Your gut feel went wrong with option one, go to option two. We're in an era of 99 different options and different trajectories. Be very data-driven and stress test everything from multiple lenses. Uh, the, the third thing I would say is that, you know, build a network, okay? You learn hell of a lot from a network. The crowd is always smarter than who you are and they always bring stuff that you haven't thought about. Talk to as many people in the MA. You will see the good, bad, and the ugly. And trust me, for a new person, by the 10th conversation, you start seeing stuff that these guys don't see or people like us don't see. And by the time you've had 50 conversations, guys, you're an expert in your own right because you start to piece patterns together, right? If you're data driven, but don't get carried away with Anirvan's experience or Nitin's experience or Marcella's experience. Um, learn from what they have done, not done, piece the patterns together and then chart your own path. That is the best thing. Thank you, Nitin. That is fantastic um, advice to hear. I think our last question for you is really around any final thoughts, any parting thoughts that you'd like to share? 
Yeah, look, uh, again, the rules of this decade are very different, as I've said that a couple of times, right? And the real thing that I have observed is that the, it's very difficult for the old organizations or the old mind or old to build the new. There are patterns of change resistance, recognize them, right? And, and don't get frustrated when you're in an old economy company because nothing will change on a Monday. What you can do best for yourself is identify those patterns and actually bring it to people, right? And, and if you look at it, there are only four or five things. There's unnecessary uniqueness people create to resist change. It's a culture of this democracy. You throw technical overload, you justify your deferral and try to push change back. And many times in an organization, people are blinded to this, but you go and, and tell people, hey, Nitin, you're creating unnecessary uniqueness. Anirban, this is not an Uber democracy. We need to make progress, right? And generally 99% people are rational. They will listen to you, but a lot of us are blindsided. It's not the intent issue. It's the efficiency and the blindside issue, but please go wake up people and show them the mirror. Uh, and many times it works. There are chances it won't work, but, but it's okay to try and fail than not try. What a fantastic way to sort of bring about closure to our discussion today. So uh, with that, I would say, ladies and gentlemen, let's put our hands together virtually for Nitin Kumar to be our guest today. Thank you, Anirvan and Marcella. I uh, really enjoyed the conversation and looking forward to staying in touch and collaborating on anything further. Excellent. And for those of you who may be listening in or maybe viewing this on a video, if you like this episode, then don't forget to hit the like button. Uh, also, share it with your colleagues and friends. And of course, if you find value, then, then don't forget to subscribe to our channel. With that, till next time, bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. And if you like this episode, I'm sure you'll also like our latest new tool. It is a quick assessment scorecard to assess the robustness of your MA integration design. It just takes less than five minutes to answer. It is for free and you can get instantaneous recommendation. So visit maintegrationplan.scoreapp.com and find out for yourself.